This is the Business Storytelling Show with Christoph Trapp. Name a top 20 storytelling podcast and a top 5% podcast globally, Christoph chats with thought leaders and experts to share tips and tricks that can help you tell your company's stories better to drive business results. Available wherever you listen to podcasts, live streamed on major social media channels, and part of the DB&A television network, available on most U.S. television sets and streaming on Roku and Amazon Fire. Here's Christoph with today's episode. Let's go. Hey, how's everyone doing? Christoph Trapp here, your host and author of the new book, Going Live. We're not going to talk about that today too much, but I want to mention that quickly. And the other thing, you guys know I'm pretty comfortable with publicly living with failure. And so I wrote this book and my editor this morning emails me and says, live streaming is one word. I don't care if it gives you a red squiggly line. It is one word, not two words, and not hyphenated. That's according to AP and whatnot. So anyway, as you can see, I still got to update the graphic. That's okay. We'll deal with it later. But that's coming out in March. I hope you check it out. But today, we want to talk about how do you talk to the media. And the reason this is a good topic to talk about here, and I might actually include some of these tips in the book. We'll see. Um, and of course, we'll, we'll quote the author. Um, but when you do interviews on live streams, it's kind of like you're talking to the media because it's out there for all to see. We got thousands of people tuning into these shows and just something to keep in mind, right? How do you deal with the media? How do you answer questions? What do you do to prepare, et cetera, et cetera? I grew up as a journalist. Today, I'm a brand journalist, so to speak. What I do is not very different from B2C journalism back in the day, except I do it for brands. So, but today I'm joined. I followed him for a long, long time. I hope he doesn't hit me over the head to say how show, I'm showing how old I am. I am getting up there. Uh, Brad Phillips, um, I've met him on Twitter uh, many, many moons ago. I don't know how long ago, Brad. How's it going? Thanks for we joining. We followed each other for years. It is nice to finally be in your orbit. <laughs> finally, finally, we're meeting face to face in person. This is the closest anybody gets to meeting in person anymore. Yeah, that's true. It's a it's a weird experience being here in quarantine. But I have also found that through all of the trials and tribulations, moments of opportunity as well. This this being one of them. Uh, so uh, we are making our way. How's everybody on your side? Everybody's holding up okay. Now, I don't know. It's just been interesting to see how people um, see each other nonstop. We don't really leave the house anymore. I don't leave the house. Um, and that's kind of how it goes. Um, how about on your end? You know, it, it, we are very fortunate considering how many people are. Um, and, and one of the, you know, one of the pluses I was alluding to is as a media and presentation coach, I typically am on the road for maybe a, easily 100, probably, well, more than that, days per year. This has been the first year where my suitcase has not come out of the toilet. That has allowed me to be home and get to know my kids. As John Stewart said when he left The Daily Show, uh, he said, I'm going to leave The Daily Show to spend some time with my family, who sources say are pretty neat people. And that's been the experience I've been able to have lately as well. Whose sources say that's interesting, but I can tell you what, I'm not retiring anytime soon to spend more time with my family because I see them nonstop currently. And, uh, it, you know, it's good 
it's it's fine. It's great. And but certainly no travel. I'm still at zero miles for the year. And we're already into the middle of February here on the live stream. Of course, the podcast guys always runs a few weeks later. So just something to keep in mind. If you can't wait to catch these episodes on Twitter, we're everywhere. We're on all these different channels. Um, and we're live streaming whenever we find the time. Um, so definitely appreciate Brad making the time today. Brad, tell us about what do we need to think about when the media comes knocking? I mean, are they are they they're out to get me, right? I mean, what's the, <laughs> what? I know I I shouldn't say stuff like that. Some people will take it serious, but what what do I need to know? How do I even deal with that and, and work with them? Well, I, I think the the first thing, and, and even though you're joking, obviously there are risks. But I think the the place I like to begin is with the opportunity. Where are the potential pluses in speaking to the media? The media are, and I'm, you know, the media is kind of a big world. What are we talking about when we're talking about the media? Are we talking about a local newspaper? Are we talking about a uh, a global broadcast network? Um, but there are huge opportunities, obviously, in speaking to the press. And I think the first thing I would say that people should keep in mind to answer your question is, while interviews should sound conversational. They are not a conversation. They should be uh, perceived by you as a strategic interaction for a purpose. And that doesn't mean that you evade a reporter's question. In fact, I think that would be a mistake. People who took media training classes 20 years ago might have been instructed by their coach, don't answer the questions you're asked, just answer and just say what you want to say. We still hear that from a lot of our clients, that they still believe that's the operative advice. It's not. Uh, you need to answer a direct question directly in, in a way that uh, doesn't undermine the perception of your authenticity uh, and how genuine you are, because if you evade a question too much, the audience will ultimately hold it against you. But within that, as long as you're adhering to that rule, it can still be an opportunity to have a strategic conversation with the audiences that matter most to you, to help communicate an idea that you believe in, to help sell a product, to help uh, deliver a call to action that gets members of your community involved in a cause that's near to you. Uh, so I try to perceive, it, writ large at least, media interviews as an opportunity to achieve hopefully something good and positive. Well, that's always the goal, of course. Now, the, the thing is, when you say they should sound conversational, but they're not conversations or, you know, something to that effect, that I, I know what you mean, right? Because we're not just sitting here, we're not just having coffee. And, you know, it was funny um we're broadcasting it who knows how many people are watching right we'll we'll see that in a little bit but but so you have to have a story that you're trying to tell but you want to tell it in a human way i mean is that kind of what we're saying or how do you how do you think of that absolutely and you know it's been several years since uh, there was a study came out of the harvard center for media and public affairs that found the average length of a media soundbite as they studied it for the broadcast networks was 7.3 seconds and even if that's a little bit dated, I think it's fair to say that if you pick up your your local newspaper or you look at the first online story you come to and you read it out loud, it's probably going to be somewhere in the range of five to 15 seconds. That's for an edited story. So the, the strategic interaction part of it comes in. If your story is going to be edited and it's not going to be uh, just a live conversation, what seven seconds or 10 seconds do you want them to pull? The number of clients who have said to me through the years, out of everything I said during my 30-minute conversation with that reporter, why did they use that? It was such a secondary or unimportant point. And, you know, I kind of gently just remind them the reason they use that is because you said it. And so the strategic part comes 
where you may only have one bite at the apple. They may only use one direct quote from an entire 30-minute conversation. What do you want that to be? And if you're not thoughtful in advance about what that is, you might end up with that disappointment of what I call a do-no-harmer. Didn't do you any reputational harm. It didn't harm you or your brand. But it's not going to be remembered. It's not going to move your audience to action. It's just going to be yet another one of these interviews that disappears into the ether. And don't get me started. People saying to me, that was so unimportant. Why did you say it to me if it's unimportant? Do you know what I mean? It's just, it's interesting when people don't think about that. Everything they say is on the record. Everything they say will be used. And certainly, you know, I don't want to, I don't think journalists necessarily try to, most journalists don't try to take things out of context, but they also only have so much time, right? So, I mean, think about it this way. You know, we're doing a podcast right now. If I was really, truly nitpicky about editing it, but I got to get the edited version out by six o'clock, you know, three hours from now, that's not a lot of time, you know? So I'm picking whatever is the easiest. So if you can't get a word out and, you, you know, you're stumbling and mumbling and whatever, why would I not use the concise quote? Yeah, you're exactly right. I think the reason people say things that are unimportant is we're conditioned through conversations for it to be naturally call and response. You ask a question, I answer the question. And so if their questions start going off in this other place that isn't really what you were hoping to communicate, people tend to follow along. It's in regular life, it would be polite to do that. In the media, it uh, presents the risk that that unimportant thing will be quoted. And you know, the second piece of that, I think, is that what reporters are looking for and what spokespeople or subject matter experts who are being interviewed or trying to achieve are not necessarily opposing forces. They often work really nicely together. What are reporters looking for, especially if it's an edited interview? They're looking for something that's pithy, something that's memorable, maybe colorful, something that communicates something of substance. That's what the spokesperson wants too. And so I think a lot of times people see media training as a manipulation of some sort when in the majority of cases, I think really you're trying to help these two forces, you and uh, the journalist, trying to align into something that works uh, equally well for both. And what's interesting too, when you talk about spokespeople, sometimes I think us spokespeople, marketers, communicators for brand, we get too hung up in the details. And I get it. Sometimes the devil is in the details on some things. But if my goal is to get some kind of coverage that raises our story, if it's close, who cares? Why do I care, right? And I sometimes, um, I actually, I wrote a headline for somebody and they said, oh, I guess that's fine. That's not how my team would write it. And I'm like, well, that's, but I, that's how I wrote it. Right. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So, and is it wrong? Like, is it? No, it's still getting you the same coverage, right? It's still basically. So, I mean, do, do you get that a lot? People saying that, oh, that's not how I would have phrased it. And you have to explain that. Well, you're not the reporter. Yes. And, you know, the rule of thumb is the closer you are to the story, the more wrong it appears to you. And so I think in, in many cases, uh, the best thing to do is, is run it by several other people in your circle who don't work with you. Because what tends to happen a lot of times is people will say, Oh, I thought it was a bad story, but all of my friends, colleagues, and family members who I trust said it looked pretty good. So maybe I'm just too close to this. And I think the other thing to your point is, you know, in a in an edited interview, maybe you have, let's say, for broadcast, two or three minutes 
for a broadcast story, and maybe in print you have 500 words. The reporter can't tell the comprehensive story. So spokespeople who try to tell a comprehensive story will inevitably become disappointed. So what I think about is, what is the goal of your interview? The goal is, you can't be comprehensive, so then what? So the goal, I think, is to be compelling enough to persuade your audience to want to take a second step with you. That you said something that was so memorable and engaging or important to them that they went to your website or they called you or if you're a business, they visited your business or they got involved in a charity endeavor. That's the second step. So the goal of an interview in some cases isn't even to focus on the things that are most important, focus on the things that are most compelling and engaging and get people in the tent to want to take another step with you. Yeah, it's definitely interesting how that happens. And, and you know, it's the full story anyways. I mean, we can be on this. Brett, how many hours could we talk about media interviews? I mean, we could be in here the rest of the day. Uh, no question about it. And, and uh, you're right. I was thinking when you were saying that, that there's an expression that history – is um, lies agreed to is one definition of, of history. And so my point is everybody has a different perspective on a story. And, it, and so it's, it's virtually impossible. That, that story is, is pretty impossible anyway. So the question then is what goal are you trying to achieve and what's the best way to achieve it? And the answer to that depends on the medium. It, yeah, the medium, um, very interesting. Let's talk about the different mediums in a minute. But one question I have first, is so my philosophy is if a reporter wants to talk to me, I always make the time, and every once in a while. So so for example, during COVID, remember uh, um, one particularly a reporter wanted to talk to them, and they said, "Oh, we said we don't have anything to talk about. We don't have any nothing. You know, we don't want to. We don't have any time or whatever." And I said, "Always talk to reporters." Well, why? I don't know. Do we need more members? No, we don't. Do we need more members in three years? Will they remember us? Because we said, here's how we handled COVID and they thought it was great. You know, like, why not? So my philosophy is always talk to reporters. Now there's a probably a fine line, right? Depending on who is calling. But in general, I think there's really no disadvantage to talking to reporters. Do you agree with that or disagree? If there's times to turn it down, I'll give you an example. Uh, the An example might be if, if, let's say there's an economic downturn and a reporter is just calling around to local businesses to see how the recession is hurting their local business. Somebody might say, you know what, I don't really want my company being associated with a bad economy. I want to, you know, we're doing okay and I don't want to present myself to the world that way. Okay, so you're part of a trend piece. You're not core to the story. Turn it down if you want to. Generally speaking, if I say if you are the principal topic of the story and they're writing the piece with or without your participation, then yeah. You so to your point, I, I, I agree with your idea that you know there is this myopia sometimes that if, if there's not an immediate uh, reason to speak, that sometimes people turn it down. I'll give you another reason people should speak. It's practice. Sometimes people will say, uh, you know, I don't really want to speak to that newscast, that blogger, that podcaster, small audience. Okay, what a gift. What a, what a wonderful opportunity to practice your skill set and learn how to be a more compelling guest. What a great ability to gain a video 
that other broadcasters, that other journalists will be able to see you deploying your skill set and say, that, that person's pretty good. We want them on our show too. Um, so I think it's a great opportunity. And the one caveat I would just add to that is, uh, you know, the other opportunity, I guess you could say, is uh, people who are newer at this, uh, if you go to Google News under their name, you go to Google Video under their name, very little may show up. So doing these types of even things that are not necessarily the biggest profile things begin to give you a portfolio. Uh, and that becomes important, not only so you can continue speaking to bigger and bigger outlets, but so those that are interested in checking you out, other potential customers, partners, employers, are able to get a sense of who you are. So Christopher, I think for all of those reasons, there are uh, a lot of reasons to say yes instead of no. Yeah, and what's interesting about that too is it does indeed take practice. So if you go back and listen to my first few podcast episodes, horrible, horrible, horrible. You go back to my first few live streams, horrible, you know? Like I wouldn't want those to be the ones that have 40,000 downloads or whatever, but I got better and better and better. And even today, five years ago, when the technology dropped, you know what I would have done, Brad? I would have been like, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God. Oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so today you just got to roll with it. You know, for the podcast, I'll try to remember to cut it out um, on here. We'll just, you know, now we're back. Why do we have to fret it? Why do we have to feel bad about it? It's just you get better and you learn these different things. Um, now, Christoph, could I just pick up on that and say, um, you know, you said at the beginning of the podcast, you have to be comfortable with failure. And I think, you know, to. Uh, on the media training side, we also do public speaking training. I'll just share a, a, a brief experience with you that this was probably three or four years ago now. I have three separate clients, probably a year apart, who were all uh, asked to give a practice speech in front of an audience and they hesitated. And in the feedback, I said, you know, I'd, I said it nicely, but essentially what I was saying to them was, it, it feels like you're not going forward here. It feels like you're holding yourself back. I'd really like to see you, you know, let the fear go as much as you can and, and just prioritize being truly authentically in the room with me and being vulnerable. And, and, and that's hard advice to hear and act on, but at some point during the training day, all three of them independently got up and said, and I won't say the word, but they each said it, okay, F it. And then they gave their next practice speech and it was their best practice speech that they gave that day. So there is something about that getting comfortable with failure when you're, it's, it may be paradoxical, but when you are willing to look bad, you tend to look better. Uh, you tend to roll with uh, things that go wrong better. And that, you know, when everything goes well, principles in your way and you can handle those gracefully, that's what I think people really form a positive impression of you. So in some ways, you know, on the media side, I, I say, um, look at tough questions as a gift. It's a gift for you to be able to persuade people that you're able to handle difficult topics well. Yeah, and it's definitely an interesting, interesting topic. The other thing when you mentioned earlier, the, the bloggers with no readers. So I remember I, I launched Eastern Iowa News uh, 12, 13 years ago or whatever it was. And um, at that time, the Green Bay Packers said, we we don't give press credential to online-only outlets. 
quite a bit. And, and, you know, there is, I mean, there's all kinds of bloggers and live streamers and podcasters who, who have a good audience. So sometimes you never know how much time should people put effort into figuring out whether they want to talk to somebody. So for example, when Seth Godin was on the show and Seth didn't say this to me, but I heard it um, from another podcaster who apparently knew this. And they said, when, when Seth gets asked to come on a show, he looks, if you have over a hundred episodes, if you do, he comes on, If you but he won't come on for episode number three, for example. And then of course, some people, they come back to me and they say, well, how many people watch? How many people listen? Who is your audience? Who, you know, blah, 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 blah. Like a hundred questions. Like how important is that? Or, or is it not important? I mean, I think it's important to know who you're speaking to and what their vibe is and if they're going to set you up for the win or they're going to ask really challenging adversarial questions or if there's something just about their brand or their personality that rubs you the wrong way that you wouldn't want to be associated with. I think these are okay things to explore. Uh, I, you know, I hesitate. You know, look, if you're Seth Godin and you have uh, such a well-known name in the industry, I think you can pick and choose pretty carefully. And, and um, I, I think it's a pretty fair presumption on my part to say he's probably invited to way more things than he could possibly accept in any normal person's work week. So, you know, you have to apply some sort of standard. Is 100 episodes somewhat arbitrary? Yes. Is it a guy that at least the person's been out there, made their initial early errors, and might be a little bit more reliable? Yes. But, but more specifically to your question, I think, you know, you have to remember that even if it is a podcaster with three listeners, um, are you going to get the video file at the end? Is it something you can embed onto your own blog? Is it something you can embed into your own uh, social feed as, as having some sort of presence that grabs the attention of another podcaster who has a bigger audience? So I think, you know, there are reasons to participate. Selfish. It's an opportunity to practice and refine your craft. And, you know, I'll just tell you from experience, I had this call this week. Um, for a proposal, she was an executive assistant to somebody in the C-suite and was asking for a proposal on public speaking. And the comment she made to me in passing was, because I asked, you know, what are the areas that you think she uh, needs to work upon? Uh, her answer was, honestly, she's so good. I don't know that she really, I don't really understand why she needs it at all. My experience is that the people who, uh, try to find training who are already a nine on the 10 scale. Um, there's a, that's the reason there are nine. The sixes don't reach out for help as much, but the people who are in nines who identify the areas that they could continue to grow, those are the ones who continue to pursue improvement and really see this as a crap. Nothing else, build the muscles so that uh, when you do have those opportunities for something bigger, a, hopefully you uh, have learned how to manage the anxiety more successfully, um, and B, you've learned some tricks and techniques along the way, so you'll be ready when it's time for prime time. It, what's interesting about that too, asking for the video file. So I, a lot of times, offer the video file when we're done. And I've actually, um, I kind of stopped doing that to an extent because most people don't want it. And I was like, well, if they don't want it, maybe, you know, whatever. But But here's the thing. I'm going to move it to Google Drive anyways when we're done here. Then I push it into Anchor. So there's no reason it on your own YouTube or whatever. I don't care, right? Most of the time, there is some branding on here. People know where it came from. I would ask people to link back, you know, so it's a, you know, people know where it came from. But at the end of the day, what do I lose if you use a quote or something? Or if you use the whole thing, if you like it, 
you know, why, I mean, I, I, I don't know why not more people say yes to that question. It's, it's kind of interesting to me. You know, I, I, I think, you know, maybe a partial answer to that is people hate watching themselves back on video sure. uh, or listening under their own voice on radio. And I get that. And, and one of the things, you know, I, I tell a story to, I've told this to a couple of clients along the way that when my wife and I met each other, um, I, I love to cook and I'm okay at it. And we, uh, so I made some kind of dinner and we sat down and started eating it. And as we started eating it, I started critiquing the food. I, I would say, I wish I caramelized this a little bit more. It needed a little more acid, whatever. And she would say, it's delicious. Stop putting it down. And I would say, I'm not putting it down. I'm analyzing what I could do differently next time. Finally, she gets that's where I'm coming from. But that's the way to watch your videos back. Um, try not to make it a self-criticism. Be kind to yourself and just say, okay, so I see a spot there. I did this a little bit clumsily. I could do it a little bit differently next time. And, and I think it is such an important way to continue to grow. So try to take the personal attacks out of it. Be kind to yourself, but do watch back your video and audio files. It's, uh, you know, it's the same thing any sports coach will do with the team that, that weekend after the big game. What worked? What didn't work? You can't get better without it. So, you know, you don't like the sound of your own voice. Guess what? You're the only person on the planet who's hearing it inside your skull, ricocheting off your skull bones and through your ears. It's going to sound distorted when you listen or watch it back and you only hear it through your ears. That's the way they've been hearing it the whole time. It's not that you hate your voice. You know, it's it's I, I, I got used to listen to my own voice. <laughs> It sounds better than I thought it would. I don't know. But but you're right. It's like athletes, right? I mean, they watch play after play and see how it worked and what worked. And you got to do the same thing. And what's interesting about live streaming now, so for, I'll give you just a quick setup here. I got my iPad in front of me. So on my iPad, I'm producing the show, Switcher Studio, switcherstudio.com. Um, check them out. Trap One gets you the first month off. I got a monitor here that goes to all the different channels so I can see if everything is working. I can see how we look. I don't like, maybe I like my voice, but I don't like my look. That's, I'm bald, Brett, I can't help myself. You know, I can lose 20 pounds, 30 pounds, um, but I can see it and I can also hear it to an extent, right? So I'm actually analyzing and learning while I'm doing, oh, I didn't like that, that didn't work. This split screen, I like that. So um, I, I do agree with that, watch things back, learn from it and, um, you know, uh, kind of visualize how you're doing it too. Now, when you talk to different mediums, so this media interview, of course, is very different from a TV interview, right? Because I'm not editing anything like other than the technical stuff. And on the live stream, it's all live anyways. Then you have the TV. Then you have, let's say, people who write about it, who use different quotes. How do you, what are some tips when you talk to somebody who's going to take your quote and turn it into something in writing? One of the, I know this is painfully obvious, but asking yourself in advance, if there's only one quote the reporter uses, what do you want that quote to be? And okay, so that's part one. But part two is that the media have a lexicon. And if you pay attention and read whatever print stories, watch whatever TV, radio, uh, edited interviews, watch the, the, uh, the format of the quotes that they tend to run because there is some commonality. For example, they tend to love metaphors and analogies. They tend to love absolute and declarative statements. They tend to love rhetorical questions. They tend to love quotes that have some emotion embedded within it. 
they tend to love triples, which is the, the, uh, the, you know, the, the language of uh, they came, they saw, they, we came, we saw, we conquered life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So our company has three main goals, growth, getting new subscribers and adding new services, those kinds of, so that's the media lexicon. And so if you could take, you know, this is the one thing I want the audience to know more than anything else, and then cross-reference it against the types of quotes that the media love to run, your odds of that being the quote they end up using have just gone up somewhat dramatically. So what I'd encourage uh, your, your viewers, listeners to do if they are doing interviews is really pay attention when you read, listen to, or watch anything that's been edited and ask yourself the question, why was that the thing that the reporter used? There's often a pattern to it. And if you can crack the pattern, you can never guarantee you're gonna get that quote because obviously the reporter has the power of the edit, but there are substantial things you can do to increase your odds. Yeah, those are really good tips, especially the the rule of three. I use that all the time. In fact, sometimes I'm like, oh, I only got two or oh, I got four. Like I literally <laughs> notice that that's, that that's the thing. The other tip I have is if you don't want to be quoted, don't say it. And I, I'll, I'll give you this example. Um, I, I And I, I, I love working with law enforcement when I was a reporter. But one time I went up to a state trooper, a uh, state patrol lieutenant, and I said, some people might say you're just traffic cops. There was a big brouhaha about, um, I don't know, they weren't responding to something, but they were doing all the traffic accidents only or something like that. I don't, it's not exactly right. And he says, we're not just traffic cops, blah, 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 blah. And he says, well, the headquarters said, you know, I shouldn't have said it. we're not just traffic cops, but you said it. I'm like, well, I did. And it's kind of a leading question, but you didn't need to repeat it. Right. I know you did. And I get it because I'm I'm slightly accusing you of something that, you know, I would like an answer to. So it's just I know it's hard, but if you don't want to be quoted, don't say it. But what if you didn't mean something that you actually said? OK, so this is tough. What you're really asking for is can I take it back after it's come out? And, you know, the answer is sometimes. Uh, I, if you if you are a public figure and you say something shocking, derogatory, I think you're going to have a very tough time getting a reporter to willingly take it back. But, you know, reporters are also people who understand that a lot of people that they're speaking to are not expert spokespeople. And let me give you an example. If I am, um, I live in Westchester County, New York. And so if there's a Westchester County Humane Society, and I go out to a local humane society and maybe there's some adorable pets that are being adopted and they have a program oh, to get uh, pets in need in people's homes. And the reporter's out there interviewing a few people, including a few of the volunteers who work there. And one of the volunteers says something kind of dumb, clumsy, inaccurate. The reporter doesn't have much of a motivation to use that clip. So if the person says, you know, I really messed that up, would you mind if I did that over again? A lot of the time the reporter is going to say yes. So I think the rule of thumb is, look, once it comes out of your mouth, can the reporter ethically use it? Probably. Are there times when a sympathetic reporter will understand that it's not really key to their story and it's not really revelatory? It doesn't move the story forward. The only way it accomplishes is to make you look bad. Yeah, they're going to they're gonna be willing to work with you on things like that most of the time. Yeah, it's an interesting question. Certainly when you do say something that's just outrageous and you're the mayor or whomever right and um certainly that's different but but if you just or if they misheard it but sometimes you don't know until it's 
it's published or you know we paraphrased or whatever now in today's world right i mean i'm i'm a media producer i got my own show here i got my own podcast my own blog and publishing arms right i mean you hear companies even do that everybody is now a publisher for lack of a better term um but does tradition right if you, if you get quoted in your local media or a trade B2B or, or whatever it might be. I mean, there's still value in, in those outlets. Oh, 100%. I mean, first of all, people can, you can quibble over the degree of influence the traditional media have versus social media. And perhaps those, well, not perhaps, those ratios are changing over time. But what are people chatting about on social media? Is it things that were generated by social users? Yes, some of the time. But so much of what they're passing along is information that was initially reported by the, the legacy media. And so there is definitely a place for it. It still is so much. You know, the other thing is the, uh, the, the traditional media are really big third-party surrogates, by which I mean, if your business, if your campaign, if your mission was, was featured in a, in a newspaper or on a, the CBS Evening News, even if people didn't see it, look, the CBS Evening News is watched by what, five, six million people a night, that leaves 320 plus a million Americans who didn't see it. But suddenly that clip now goes on your website and people visiting the site go, oh, well, that campaign must be the real deal if CBS News is profiling it. So, you know, I think there is a tendency to reflexively dismiss the importance of the traditional media. Um, it, it's too less than it used to be, but still pretty darn powerful. Yeah, absolutely. Very interesting. Uh, Brad Phillips joined us today. Um, his book, of course, is linked in the show notes, also at the bottom there of on Amazon Live. Um, it's linked right there. So click on over if you want to give a read and learn more how to talk to the media. And I think you can use some of these tips and tricks um, also when you do live streams and podcasts. And, and certainly I'm currently on the live streaming bandwagon. I think it's a fantastic way for companies to get more out of their podcasts. Um, despite some of the technical difficulties. Brad, it was great to connect with you. Really appreciate you making the time. Likewise, Christoph. Good luck to you, and let's do it again. You got it. Thanks, everyone, for watching and listening. Until next time. That's a wrap. Thanks for tuning in. Please rate and review our show on your favorite podcast channels. And don't forget to share this episode with your networks. We appreciate you. Until next time, let the best stories win.